Hey, FAC, Pastor Mike here. If you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We're just going to continue right along in that book. Uh, We're going to be in verses 9 through 25 today. As you're turning there, I do want you to know how encouraged uh, I've been the last several weeks. I've heard from many of you, and you have been an encouragement to me. You've been a refreshment uh, to me. And, And so feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, Once again, we're in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. I invite you to just follow along with me as I read those verses. This is what it says. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Would you pray with me as we begin our time? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would equip us to understand your word, Lord. I pray that uh, the the word preached, the the gospel proclaimed, would uh, bring about transformation of the heart. I would pray, Lord, that we would now look inward uh, and where we stand before you, Lord, and ask the hard question, is my heart right before you? We thank you for the gift of Jesus that has allowed our heart to be right before you. And we thank you, Father, uh, for um, the wisdom and knowledge that your spirit brings and understanding of your word. And I pray, Father, as we spend this time, that your spirit would move in a powerful way. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. As I was studying and preparing for this passage, I was reminded of one of my favorite movies from 2006 called The Prestige. It's a psychological thriller 
about two rival stage magicians who began as friends, uh, but eventually their desire and drive to outwit each other proved to be fatal. Uh, One of the magicians named Alfred Bourdon creates an illusion called the transporting man that seems so simple, yet it's so mysterious. And his rival magician, Robert Angier, becomes obsessed throughout the movie with finding out how Bourdon does this trick. He grows so tormented by this trick that he begins to dabble in real mysterious magic. And by the end of the movie, we find that Angier is no longer satisfied with simple sleight of hand, uh, but rather he is immersed quite literally into a deep and dangerous power. The whole movie is just a power struggle between two men and their hungry desire for more. Similarly, in Acts chapter 8, we meet a character by the name of Simon, who is, seems to be obsessed with great power. And we see what happens to Simon as he comes face to face with a greater power that he doesn't possess. This passage really comes down to just a showdown of power. We know, reading this in hindsight, that this greater power is the power of the Holy Spirit, but Simon is introduced to such power through the means of a disciple named Philip. Last week, we took a look at verses 4 through 8, and we read about Philip who fled from Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen. And he landed in this city of Samaria where he began to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And as he spoke, he was also able to perform great miracles. He was healing people who were sick, and he was uh, casting out unclean spirits and This brought joy to the entire city, and it specifically says that these people gave their attention to Philip. This week, in verses 9 through 11, we actually get a flashback of what was happening in this area prior to Philip's arrival, and we're introduced to this power-hungry character named Simon. We read that Simon practiced magic. Now, don't think of this as a magician that you would invite to your seven-year-old's birthday party who pulls a rabbit out of his hat. No, a better word to uh, describe Simon's involvement in magic is actually the word sorcery. He wasn't just a magician, he was a sorcerer. Such a practice would include, uh, have included charms and incantations. And Simon is dabbling in some pretty dark stuff. We get the feeling that, once again, this isn't merely a sleight of hand, but that Simon actually carries some kind of supernatural power to the point that Simon calls himself great. And the people, the crowds in Samaria before Philip arrived would just eat this up about what he's saying about himself to to the point where they begin to testify that Simon is so-called the power of God and they too call him great. They give him this title, great, like the great Simon. Now this title isn't a divine title. Simon is not claiming to be God, to be divine. But he is claiming 
that his power has divine origin. He's claiming that this power comes from God. This passage paints Simon in a negative light. One commentator writes that Simon is actually portrayed here as a satanic figure whose power is manifested in sorcery and idolatry. And when you consider the reception that he has to the masses, you can see how serious of a situation this is. This is scary because we read that he has the attention of the crowds in Samaria. They are all amazed at him and his work. In reading this, you can just feel the influence that Simon has over these people. I hope that you can see the very serious warning that these first verses provide. In Simon, we actually see that not all supernatural power is good. Simon could do great things, but they were not of God. Just because someone does amazing work or just because someone does amazing things or even miracles does not necessarily mean that they are from God. And furthermore, just because somebody has a following, just because hundreds or even thousands or hundreds of thousands follow someone does not mean that they are from God. I promise you that there are people out there who uh, leaders out there right now with dynamic personalities, with magnetic personalities that do amazing things, that have amazing power, that carry amazing influence, who claim they are from God, but are actually tools of the devil. And many believers fall into their trap the danger of their influence is real. Simon has this kind of grip on these people with his power. But then one day, a greater power comes strolling into town. The power of the Holy Spirit arrests the attention of the Samaritan people. The Holy Spirit wakes them up in verse 12, and he wakes them up specifically through the work of the word, through the proclamation of God's word. Notice in verse 12 that it it says that they believed Philip, not because of anything he did, but they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. It was the word of God preached that shifted their attention away from the deceitful Simon to the true power of Jesus Christ. Yes, Philip did amazing works. Yes, he demonstrated God's power. But at the end of the day, ultimately, the Holy Spirit used the word of God preached, the message of Jesus Christ proclaimed to capture their attention away from Simon. This is why the centrality of God's word is absolutely essential because it's the primary way the Holy Spirit transforms one's heart. And we see that it was the primary way that God transformed the hearts of the Samaritans. 
Now for Simon, he's witnessing this before his very eyes. He sees his influence weaken. He sees his grip on the people loosen as they turn away from him to Jesus. And you might suppose someone who is power hungry like Simon would aggressively retaliate uh, at, at a moment like this. But in a shocking turn of events in verse 13, we find that Simon himself believes and is baptized. Perhaps Simon sees Philip's power and how it's so much greater than his, and he's thinking, well, if I can't beat the guy, I might as well just join him. Now, when I read this, I deeply want to believe that Simon's faith, that Simon's decision, that Simon's belief is authentic. But unfortunately, right away, we find clues to suggest that his decision may be insincere. There's still something not quite right with Simon. And we see hints of this in the second half of verse 13. Go ahead and look at it. First, we read that after his baptism, he continues with Philip. We get this picture that Simon has this unhealthy obsession with Philip, that he's kind of just following Philip along like a lost puppy would would follow somebody, a lost puppy who has lost his way. The picture we get also is how a fan follows some sort of celebrity. Simon has attached himself not to Jesus, but to Philip and in a very odd way. As a side note, I actually fear that many Christians, sometimes uh, believers, take this posture of Simon when we catch ourselves up following celebrity preachers. I fear that we are more loyal and more in tune with certain pastors than we are to Jesus himself. And we say that what they say is ironclad and anyone who goes against them must be foolish. This is a dangerous mindset and very well could be evidence of immaturity in the faith. Because all preachers are under the same authority of the word of God. And that's where their accountability lies. And so we must be careful not to attach ourselves to just one or a handful of preachers, but rather to attach ourselves to the word of God. Even Paul addresses this when he writes to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth had a celebrity pastor problem. There was one group that followed Paul and loved the Apostle Paul, but then there was another group that followed and loved the early church leader Apollos. And it was actually causing division in the church. And so Paul said, enough, enough of this. He he writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. Take a look at it. Paul writes, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
It's an unhealthy practice for Simon to attach himself to Philip as he does. And perhaps Simon is merely responding in a way that he would expect from someone to follow him and his power. He had a cult-like following and now someone bigger and better has come along and he wants some of that. And this is the second clue that we get in the second part of verse 13, that something is not quite right with Simon's decision to believe in Jesus. Not only is he continuing with Philip, he's following him along like one would do to a celebrity. No, in verse 13, we also see that, that, he, that Simon is obsessed with these signs and great miracles. We read that seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now let's digest this a little bit, because from this verse, we see a little bit of contrast between how Simon reacts to the reception of the gospel and how the Samaritans crowds, the Samaritan crowds react to the reception of the gospel. In, in verse 12, if, actually, if you look closely at the whole passage, you'll find that it never actually says in the text that the crowds were amazed with Philip's power and his actions. It says that they were amazed with Simon's power. It says that the crowds gave Philip their attention. It even says that there was great joy. But we never get the feeling that they merely believed Philip's teaching only because of his power. No, in verse 12, Philip does not win the crowds over because he amazed them with his works. No, Philip does not win them over because he somehow managed to one-up Simon. No, as we already established in verse 12, they are won over by the proclamation of the gospel. They are won over by the good news of Jesus Christ. It says when they believed Philip... As he preached about Jesus Christ and his kingdom, they were baptized. But as Simon pursues baptism in verse 13, he is much more preoccupied with the signs and great miracles that are performed than he is of the kingdom of God, than he is of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we actually see this further down. We see Simon's heart revealed even more as we journey to the next part of the passage in verses 14 through 19. In verse 14, take a look at it. We find that the apostles, who are really just the original 12 disciples of Jesus, they hear word that Samaria has received the word of God. And in response, they send Peter and John the apostles down to check it out. They want to investigate the matter. And this would make sense that they would want to verify such reception to the gospel, not because they don't trust Philip uh, and his report, but rather because as we discovered last week, this is a substantial transition in gospel advancement. Once again, to this point, only Jewish people have received the gospel and believed and trusted in Jesus. And now for the first time, non-Jewish people are receiving the gospel. And this is such a significant step that the apostles certainly would want to ensure that this is indeed true. And so Peter and John go to Samaria and they come to find that the Samaritans 
while having been baptized in Jesus' name, have not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so they lay hands on them, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. They uh, receive the Holy Spirit, if you will. Now, these are some of the more confusing verses that we'll come across in Scripture. And I actually feel the need to address it. We need to briefly hit the pause button on Simon to talk about what's going on with the Holy Spirit here. So forgive me for just sidestepping for a moment. We need to address this because it's glaring. It's there in the text. Uh, But I only want to spend a brief moment on it because this is not the main point of the passage. Let me just say this up front, that this passage was not written to teach a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. No, this passage is meant to focus our attention on this character of Simon and his errant views on the power of God. However, we still need to look into what's going on with the Holy Spirit here. Now, perhaps in the past you have searched scriptures about the Holy Spirit in order to gain an understanding of who he is. That's good, and and I would encourage you to do so. But if you're anything like me, um, as you seek to find answers uh, about the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, and as you study, perhaps you wind up with more questions than you originally started with. Uh, And you wind up in this just hot mess of theological confusion. And so as simply as I can, I I just want to start on common ground, what all believers can agree on about the Holy Spirit. All believers agree that when one becomes a Christian, when one is converted, when they are a Christ follower, they are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit plays some kind of role in our conversion. This is what Peter taught in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. If you recall, Peter, uh, shortly after Pentecost, is preaching to the Jerusalem crowds, to the Jewish people, and he tells them after his sermon, that when they ask him, what, what do we do? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul touches on this in Romans 8, 9. This is what Paul writes. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What Paul, what God tells us through Paul's words is that if you don't have the Holy Spirit you're actually not a true believer. Your faith is not genuine. Now, what happens after salvation is where things get a little messy and where there's some disagreements. There are Christians who believe that there is actually a second and distinct experience of the Holy Spirit that comes subsequent to salvation. And even believers that fall into this camp disagree on how this looks. They disagree with how this second experience manifests itself. And simply put, though, this point of view says that, yes, you received the Holy Spirit uh, on the day of salvation. He lives in you. 
He has sealed you for that day of redemption. However, you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit or you could be immersed into the Holy Spirit as you continue your walk with Christ. You can enjoy a greater fullness of power in the Holy Spirit. The Christian and Missionary Alliance, our denomination, actually falls into this camp. We believe that you can further submit yourselves or yield yourselves over to the Spirit's leading, that you can rely uh, more on the influence of the Spirit. But wherever you land on this position, whether you believe there's a second experience of the Holy Spirit or not, this passage in Acts chapter 8 proves problematic. Because if you believe that there's only one experience of the Holy Spirit that happens at conversion, then you have to look at the Samaritans and say that they actually weren't saved back in verse 12, that when they were baptized and made that decision, their faith wasn't genuine. However, there's strong evidence in the text to suggest that they indeed are genuine believers. And even more so, according to John Piper, who's much smarter and wiser than I am, virtually all historical interpreters up until recent days have assumed that the Samaritans were genuine believers before the apostles came down. But if you believe that there is a second experience in the Spirit subsequent to conversion, then verses 15 and 16 prove problematic. If the Samaritan's faith is genuine in verse 12, which I believe it is, clearly verses 15 and 16, the the Samaritans actually haven't received the Spirit for the first time. There is no Spirit. The Spirit hasn't fallen on them yet at all. And so with this, the conclusion that many interpreters draw in these verses is that the Samaritans, what they experience here is not normative. This is not a normal experience for a believer. It's, it's, a, it's not prescriptive, if you will, for all believers and what happens to them normally, but rather it's just a description of what happened to the Samaritans. That the Samaritans are indeed genuine believers, but in an abnormal fashion, the initial dwelling of the Spirit is held off until the apostles arrive. Now, why on earth would God do such a thing? Why would he do this? Well, we must remember the context set from last week. The Samaritans, remember, are enemies of the Jews. And this chapter marks that significant transition in gospel advancement. Many interpreters suggest that perhaps God withheld the Holy Spirit until the apostles arrive so that the Jewish apostles could witness the Samaritans receiving the Spirit firsthand. And then they would have the authority to go back to Jerusalem, to go back to the Jewish people, and attest to the fact that non-Jewish Samaritans, our enemies, have indeed been included into this new community of God that revolves 
around Jesus. As one commentator puts it, given the circumstances, there needed to be unmistakable evidence of their acceptance into the Christian community. Really what this is, is a preemptive measure, a preemptive maneuver by God to ensure church unity. With this, the Jewish community could not claim that the Samaritans were somehow a different breed or a different kind of Christians because there was objective, visual evidence from the apostles themselves of some sort that the apostles could testify to that the Samaritans had received the same spirit that they had. And this visual evidence um, brings us back to Simon the magician in verse 18. Simon takes a back seat in the narrative in verses 14 through 17, which we just walked through together. But now he comes roaring back in verse 18. Once again, remember back in verse 13 that Simon has kind of this unhealthy obsession with power and with amazing works and, and, and with, uh, with Simon's great, or I'm sorry, with Philip's great miracles. Um, and so it should come as no surprise to us that he is also impressed with the apostles' power, right? As he sees the Spirit fall down on the Samaritans, through the apostles laying on their hands, he looks at them and says, well, I certainly want some of that. That was really cool. I, I want to be able to do that. And so in verse 19, he requests this of the apostles. He says, hey, give me that. Give me that power also so that I can have the power to distribute the Spirit. You'll notice that Simon doesn't really have an interest in receiving the Spirit. He doesn't really have an interest in even seeing the Spirit spread among the people. No, he just wants the power and the authority to give the Spirit out as he sees fit. He approaches the situation like you would with a modern magician. You see a really cool stage trick and you say, how did you do that? I want to know how you did, how did you do that? I want to know. I would like you to show me how you did that trick. We want to know, not merely so our curiosity is satisfied, but if we're honest, it's because we want to be able to go and do the cool magic trick elsewhere, and we want to be able to impress our friends. We want the power to amaze. Simon, Wants to be, wants people to be amazed with him once more for what he can do. He wants the attention. He wants the ability to stroll into a party or to stroll into a gathering and say, Hey, everybody, check this out. Look, look what I can do. Right? He wants to be in his eyes the center of the cool party trick. Uh, so everyone around can say, Oh, look at Simon. Have you heard about Simon? Have you heard what, what Simon can do? Simon, do, do that again so that everybody else can see how amazing you are. And then to top it all off, Simon in his request to the apostles offers money to them so that they can teach him how to do this. He sees this merely as a business uh, transaction. Perhaps this is just an investment. He's saying, I want to look powerful and I'm willing to pay the price that comes with it. And then Peter, 
bold, strong-willed Peter in verse 20 just rips into Simon. This this public rebuke. He, He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is a harsh rebuke that speaks to just the destruction of Simon and his money. That word perish is associated with the destructive fires of hell. In a sense, uh, what Peter is saying, and I apologize for how graphic this is, but many commentators write that Peter is basically saying, to hell with you and your money, Simon. This shows us how serious this is. In verse 22, Peter calls Simon wicked, that he's in the bond of iniquity, that he is the gall of bitterness. This is a reference that comes from Deuteronomy 29.18. It's used to describe uh, those who influenced the Israelites to follow other gods, to fall after idolatry. They're called a root that produces bitter poison. Basically, Peter tells Simon that his ideas about God and his power is poisonous. And they have no place here. And then in verse 21, we find the true condition of Simon's heart. We see the real Simon. Peter tells him, Simon, your heart is not right before God. And because of that, you have no part in this matter. Or essentially, he's saying you have no right to the blessings of God. These things, these blessings do not belong to you. The Holy Spirit does not belong to you. So you need to repent of such wickedness and pray that God would possibly forgive you. What Peter explains here is that Simon is not a genuine believer because his heart is not right before God. His heart still stands in opposition to God and his ways. And history would support this. Simon would go on to make a name for himself for all the wrong reasons. Justin Martyr, who's a second century Christian writer, uh, claimed that Simon was empowered by all kinds of demons and that the Roman Empire actually recognized, would go on to recognize Simon as a god. Irenaeus, another second century Christian writer, said that Simon was the origin of all sorts of Gnostic heresies. That Simon is essentially the father of Gnosticism. And with all of that, you sit there and say, but wait a minute. Didn't, didn't Simon make a, make a profession of faith? Wasn't he, he was even baptized in verse 13. He, he made a decision for Jesus. How, how can this be? I'm I'm confused. How can this be so? It's a sobering reminder that not all who profess belief in Jesus are truly part of the family of God. Jesus himself said it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Simon's profession of belief in verse 13 proves to be superficial. He's just going through the motions. And I believe that he's going through the motions because in his mind there's uh, something that he wants to selfishly gain. And that is this special kind of power. Many people make that decision for Christ for the wrong reasons. Some people are attracted to something they see in the church. Maybe it's community. Maybe it's some kind of a support. Maybe it keeps their conscience clear. I've seen people make professions of faith, not just for something they see in the church, but someone they see in the church. Right? They say, oh, that girl or that guy is a Christian, so I better uh, uh, profess faith in Christ if I should ever uh, catch their attention. Many people, while they say yes to Jesus and go through all the motions, never get around to actually trusting Jesus. Their hearts are never truly made right before God. As one pastor puts it, this is a clear reminder to us that uh, there is a great difference between professing to believe and believing. No, God does not concern himself with external practice or demonstration as if we can fool God by what we do. No, he is concerned with the condition of our hearts, that our hearts would be right before him. Many people make Christianity out as if it's something you do. Just this past week, I stumbled across a Facebook post of an old friend of mine who wrote about how many years ago he left Christianity behind him, almost as if it's a suitcase that you can pick up from time to time, when it's, and when it's no longer useful, you can just leave it there. You can just leave it behind. Or perhaps it's like an outfit that you try on, and sure, it's cute in the moment, but it no longer serves my needs. I liked this outfit. It was a good outfit, but now I'm going to go and try on something else. But this is not a proper understanding of biblical Christianity because Christianity is not something that you do nor the decisions that you make, but rather Christianity is something that you are. It's something you've become through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a set of external circumstances or decisions. It's the transformation of the heart brought on by the Holy Spirit. And an outward expression, an outward response is no guarantee of an inward change. So don't think for a minute that just because you made a decision for Jesus at uh, that one time at youth camp and, and were even baptized means that your faith is genuine purely based on the fact that you took those steps. This is why we should purge the vocabulary of decisions for Christ from our Christian dictionary because we aren't looking for decisions. No, we are looking for true conversion. Conversion, true salvation is more than just profession. It is a move from death to life. It is a positional change before God. My heart was against God. My heart hated God. My heart was blind to God's ways. And then the Holy Spirit came and opened my eyes. And now, as he opened my eyes to the saving grace of Jesus, my heart is made right before God. We should desire more than just a yes for Christ. 
We should desire souls who were dead to their sin and now have come alive by the power of the Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we receive that blessing, that gift, not just by professing to believe, but believing. This reminds me of the story of Charles Blondin. You've probably heard the story before, but the illustration works well here. Blondin was a world-famous tightrope walker in the 1800s. And the story goes that on one occasion, after completing a tightrope walk over Niagara Falls many times while also doing various numerous tricks, Blondin pulls out a wheelbarrow and he asks the crowd, who believes that I can cross this tightrope with somebody in the wheelbarrow? Well, that got the crowd riled up and they all hollered in affirmation that they believed he could do it. And then Blondin asked for a volunteer. The truest test of trust. When it comes to eternity, there is a tightrope over the pits of hell that only Jesus can walk and has walked across. And it makes no difference if you sit there and say, Jesus, I believe that you can carry me over. I believe that you can do it, that you can make that walk. No, what God requires is for you to get in the wheelbarrow and trust Jesus with your whole life that he will deliver you through. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and your deliverance, Father. And I would, I would pray, Lord, that even as people listen to this, that they would examine their hearts right now in this moment and ask, Father, God, is, is my heart right before you? Perhaps in the past I've made a decision for Christ or I've responded in a, in a way, Lord, but now as they examine their own life and their own heart, they see that there has been no true uh, conversion, no true change, that their heart still stands against you, rebellious against you, Father. Would you open up these such eyes in this moment, Lord? And in your holy name I pray. Amen.